You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, his name is Brian Kastner. He's currently an author. His newest book is just out. He's a co-author of it. It's called The Road Ahead, Stories of the Forever War. And it's basically about the 10 years since boots have hit on ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. But before that, he spent several years in the United States Air Force as an explosive ordnance disposal technician, EOD as it's commonly known. Uh, For those of you who may have seen the movie Hurt Locker, those are the guys who go out there and defuse the bombs on the side of the road. One of the most dangerous, high-skill, high-level jobs that the entire military has. And Brian was lucky enough to do it for a very long time, and his story is incredible, and we want to welcome him. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. All right, well, the first question we always start with here on the podcast is, uh, tell us why you joined the military. You know, I actually joined, I mean, now it's got, it's going to be 1994 that I sat down with an ROTC application, um, you know, to decide what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I guess it's been a little while, but I actually wanted to be an astronaut. I guess I, just to correct one <laughs> little thing, I was Air Force uh, and nothing against the Army, only that I wanted I wanted to fly in space, and like everybody else, my recruiter lied to me and told me that, yes, absolutely, you can go and do that. Um, and I got an electrical engineering degree and was convinced that, you know, I was still going to end up at NASA someday. Uh, and, of course, that's not how life worked out. That's not how the military worked out. But I think, you know, this is true for me, but probably true for a lot of people, that once you, you know, there were, there were opportunities for me to be done with the military but I kept signing up, so to speak. I could have, uh, I could have gotten out of my ROTC contract. I could have only done four years. I ended up doing eight years. Uh, I, you know, I volunteered to go to explosive ordnance disposal school. And so, there's, when you're in the military, you're choosing to rejoin, so to speak, over and over again. If you do more than your one enlistment or your, you know, your one little stint uh, from your service commitment. But why did you keep coming back? I mean, what, what was the draw to it? Because a lot of people who end up, you know, enlisting the military or signing up, after you get to that first term, the, the general philosophy is by most military leadership is that if we get them for the second, we know we'll have them almost for 20 because that's usually when people get to the hill past 8 or 10, they're willing to stay in. So what was the draw for you to continue to stay? Yeah, I got to 8, so I guess I was exactly uh, like you described. I was... You know, so like I said, I, I signed my ROTC application in 1994. I got commissioned in 99. It was a very different world then, of course. But when I was a second lieutenant and already in Saudi Arabia is when 9-11 happened. And um, I don't know, that changed everybody's perspective on life, including my own. And I wanted, I was, like I said, I was in Saudi. I volunteered to go from Saudi to Afghanistan. They wouldn't let me. They sent me home. And I wanted a job where I could do something more hands-on, be more physically involved in what I saw as a great purpose of, you know, defending my country since we had just been attacked, um, you know, on 9-11. So I volunteered, I volunteered for Explosive Ordnance Disposal School, EOD school, because it seemed like the coolest, hardest, best thing I could possibly do. And no matter what else I did in my military career, if I graduated that school and, you know, 30 of us started and only three of us finished in my class, if I made it through that, I knew I had, I had done something I could always be proud of. And that's true. I, I still am. And then, um, you know, I did a tour in Iraq. Uh, I volunteered to do a second tour 
and that's when I got to my eight years about and said, you know what, I've I've done my part, and I and I chose to do something else. Why EOD school? Why explosive ordnance disposal? I mean, I, for people who don't know, look, it, it, as you said, it's an extremely tough school. Uh, it, it's not like going to Navy SEALs or going into special operations in the Army. It's a different kind of tough. It is is, is mentally challenged as it is physically. But why did you choose that road? Was it because you knew that immediately you would go downrange and deploy? Oh, yeah. And I was I was actually in school during, um, in 2003, during the Iraq invasion. And, you know, it was, it was funny. At the time, a lot of people said, well, you better get over there while you can because the war will be done, which is like crazy talk now, of course. Now we, <laughs> we call it the forever yeah. war because we wonder when it will ever, ever be over with. Um, but at the time, Afghanistan had gone well, and I, I was supportive. I wanted to do my part. But you're right. Like EOD school, it's not the SEALs. Um, but it is an interesting mix of uh, of physical and mental, in that you have to you have to have the book knowledge to know what to do, and then you need to go and physically do something. It's a little bit like being a surgeon, except if you screw up, you die instead of the patient. Um, <laughs> Very and, good analogy. Yeah, and so there there was this great combination. Um, it's not like I was some sports star in high school or something. Like I, the the physical side of it was was really challenging for me, um, but. But yeah, if you if you if you knew what to do and then you still but you couldn't go down and put the explosives the right way uh, or dig the bomb out of the ground or whatever it was, then you weren't going to pass either. So it was a great combination of challenges. You know, we hear that so often on the podcast from people we talk to that I, I wanted to do more. I wanted to do my part, and especially after nine eleven, I wanted to do something that could help the country, that could help defend America, and everything that happened. Where did that come from in, within you? Like, what was it? What was it about? inside of you that said, look, I've got to do more? You know, for me, it was family. Um, and I, I guess I'll be honest, I am, I am not a um, number one Joe, wave the flag, patriotic kind of guy. I wasn't that before. I, I'm not that afterwards. Um, I, I have nothing against those folks. It just That's not what came for me. What came for me was a family tradition and um, Every male member of my family, except my father, actually had served in the military. I had three uncles in Vietnam. I had two grandfathers in World War II. I had a great-great-grandfather who was wounded at the Second Battle of Bull Run. He fought at Pennsylvania Volunteers. Wow. Uh, And if that, you know, Confederate bullet had been a little bit to the left or right, you know, I wouldn't be here. So it it was taking my part in a family tradition and that this is what the men of my family do and I wanted I wanted to fulfill that in some way and and I guess the other part of that is so I could could have done that a lot of ways there's this idea of service and you know I went to a Jesuit university Marquette University and I talk a lot about social justice uh, and just this idea of serving something greater than yourself and of course these are all like great fancy ideas but once you actually get in it why volunteer for a second tour well, because all my buddies are going back, and I want to be there to keep them safe. Ironically, I also went to a Jesuit college, so there we have that in common. Uh, it's kind yeah. of a small world. As I mentioned to you before we started talking, I'm also an ordinance officer. Uh, I didn't do the level of what you did, obviously, in my career, but uh, nonetheless, there's a lot of similarities here. But let's go back to the ordinance part, the explosive ordinance disposal. You know, Usually when guys go through a school like that, and we've talked to a bunch of SEALs and special ops guys, Green Berets, it's the bonds in that school are what you take with you for a lifetime. You said just a moment ago that only three guys graduated your class. I bet you know all of their names still. 
Oh, yeah, of course I do. And unfortunately, uh, one of them, Jeff Cheney, uh, died in uh, July of 2007. And, you know, that, I, I don't know, like I'm, I'm standing here, I'm talking on the phone with you, and I've got Jeff's photo, you know, up here on the mantelpiece, literally, while we're speaking. So wow. th- those kind of bonds, yes, they don't. Um, you know, we have a, we're, we're not the only one, SEALs and, and like you say, special forces and such, too. We have a memorial uh, down in Florida where we have the names of all the men and women who have died since World War II. Um, first, first name on the wall is a Navy lieutenant who was taking apart an underwater mine in a London harbor in 1942 or 43, you know, all the way up until, unfortunately, we just lost another guy in Iraq a couple weeks ago. So... Uh, all those names are there, and, yeah, it's it's the bond for sure. Was there any part of EOD school where you're going through this where you felt like, whoa, I'm in over my head, I, I've chosen the wrong thing, or it's like, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, I was, so I was so focused. I don't know. It's, it's a lot like I hear professional athletes talk, right? where you hear football players, and they're always saying, well, I can't think about the whole season. I've got to think about the next game. And that's really what it was. I had a... Uh, the Navy calls them twin pins, guys who have both uh, the SEAL Trident and an EOD badge. Uh, and we had a twin pin in demolitions who would, like, set us down and make us meditate and just visualize how we were going to perfectly do our demolitions operation the next day. Um, and just thinking like this was new to me. So I was, I was taking a lot on board. It wasn't just um, all the new academic material. It was just a new way of thinking about how to do this. There, I mean, there's a few, there's a few crucibles uh, that are known as being particularly bad. Uh, ground ordnance and air ordnance are two pretty bad ones. Um, but by the time you get to nukes at the end, believe it or not, nukes are the easy ones. By the time you get to nukes, um, you know, you're looking at graduation and where am I going to go next? So you actually learn to disable a nuclear weapon in school? You do, yes. Uh, <laughs> American nuclear weapons. But if, you know, if there's a you know, Broken Arrow, that's more than just a bad movie. Right. You know, there's, uh, if, if a nuke breaks, uh, then they call us to fix it. It's crazy because I just, just think about that. We're so worried about somebody detonating a nuclear weapon, and your purpose was to make sure a nuclear weapon didn't detonate. It's, it's, it's kind of just a weird dichotomy. Yeah, and you know, that's actually how, that's how I decided EOD to begin with. So I guess uh, just a, a little story. So when right. I was in... Saudi Arabia, I said after 9-11, I was a chemical guy. I was teaching people to wear their gas mask and worried about biological agents being distributed on the air base, that kind of thing. And we had a couple guys show up uh, with beards and in civilian clothes, which meant that, you know, they were special and cool somehow. And they gathered a bunch of the first responders. Uh, that would be us, uh, fire department, um, some firefighters, some cops. And then a bunch of these EOD guys, they gathered, gathered us all together, and they said that there was intelligence that uh, Osama bin Laden had one of the Russian old Soviet backpack nukes, and that he was going to use it, wanted to use it in Saudi Arabia. And these guys pulled out from this package, they had like in a bag, this long green cylinder, and they said, well, this is what it looks like. And then they showed us the dials on the side. And said, and if you see it, there's going to be no time for you to call somebody. You need to flip through the dials, and this is how you turn the thing off. And my eyes were about as big as saucers. Wow. And the EOD guys who were sitting there kind of like shrugged and looked at each other like, yeah, we knew this. Why are you, why are you talking to us? 
And my thought was, who are those guys that this is like any other day for them, that this is this is the job they do. That's what I want to do. You know, what's funny is that so many times that happens in the military when you're early on in your career, because a lot of times when people sign up, they don't really know what they're getting into. Like they know they're signing up for the Army, the Air Force, whatever it is. But it's not until you actually get to your unit and you get somewhere and you see what other people are doing and you go, whoa, I want to be one of those guys. And that really is, is, it's a driving force for a lot of military people because it gives you your purpose. That is 100% right. I mean, who knew that EOD is a job, really? Yeah, uh, they, when, they don't tell you that at the recruiting yeah. station or in ROTC. Yeah. And there's, I, I can't tell you the number of Army EOD soldiers I've met who are all uh, former infantry guys from the 82nd. And when they jumped out of, a, you know, jumped out of the C-130 and then had to march across Fort Bragg, and they saw the EOD guys in Humvees, they said, how do I get a job where I drive? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old story, like you say, all over. All right, so let's go back. You finish EOD school. What year are you? Where are you? How old are you? And how quickly do you get to your first deployment? Well, it was, um, it was the end of 2003, which I guess would have made me about uh, 26 or so. I was married. I had two kids. Uh, my first assignment was... Uh, at a small unit in New Mexico, and the first thing I did was call headquarters and say, how quickly can you deploy me? And the answer was about nine months. We started workups and training. Uh, and then I went to Balad in 2005 and, um, and then managed to do a military move in between and move to Vegas at the end of 2005 and then deployed back to Kirkuk in 2006. And then I guess I was out of the military by 07. All right. Balad and both Kirkuk are in Iraq. Uh, you know, Balad about 35, 40 miles north of, of Baghdad and Kirkuk, uh, pretty much between Mosul and Baghdad. But let's back up. When you decided you wanted to deploy and you had a wife and a family, what was your wife's reaction? Well, I mean, not good. It, it's, uh, you know, there's some military families that, um, that it really works for, the uh, the seeing the world, the you know, for whatever, you know, some marriages it works fine, and for ours it just didn't, and it was it was always a stressor. We had small children, um, and I mean, she 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 knew how much it meant to me to go to EOD school, um, but I think I don't know. Like, do you really know what's coming? Do you really know what a tour in Iraq is going to be like before you go? I don't I don't think that's possible. No, it never is. Um, and I, I would say that for the people who are excited about deploying, it, it always struck me as not that it was it was strange or anything, but I, I guess I was just somebody who knew that because I was in, my time was coming, and it was just a matter of time before I got there, so I didn't really push the issue. Um, and when my number got called, obviously I pick up and go. But for people who wanted to go, the, the stress you put on your family there, I mean, that is – did you ever regret going because of what it did to your family? No, and maybe, you know, maybe I'd be a better person if it did. Like, I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time regretting uh, what I had done, and it wasn't even the first tour. The second tour was really the one that was much harder on my wife to volunteer to go back. You know, I think the first time she thought maybe he'll go and get it out of his system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I wanted to go back again, and, and you know what? The, the truth is that for years, even after I was out of the military, um, you know, you have this fantasy that somebody's going to call you and say, we need you again, and you're going to, like, somehow put on the uniform again and suddenly be back in your old unit and get a chance to do it all over. You know, I, I harbored that fantasy um, for more than a couple years, actually. Um, 
but but no, it was it was tough uh, for sure. What were your expectations? Because obviously, mentally in your mind, you're building up what's going on. This is 2003. Not only are we in Afghanistan, but we've just invaded Iraq. Uh, shock and awe. All these things you're watching on the news. You clearly had to have, have put some thoughts in your head about what it's going to be like when you get to Iraq. What were you thinking prior to getting there? I was thinking I'm going to, I think the quote is, blow stuff up for real. <laughs> you, you know, and that there would be, and of course our job is, at the time, now this again might sound a little silly, at the time, the stories that you heard was of like old ammunition dumps uh, that were abandoned and guys were, uh, men and women, they were going out and doing, you know, uh, disposal shots of 100,000 pounds of uh, Iraqi ordnance or something, just like the biggest detonations that you could imagine. And that's what I thought I was getting into. And then I remember uh, distinctly, I get to Balad, uh, and we're living in a, a like a disintegrating tent. Uh, it had only been up to two years or whatever, but it was already had like holes in it. And there are mice living under the floor uh, that just squeak all night. And there's rockets inbound. And everything about Iraq was terrible, and I loved every bit of it. Why did you and love it? Because, like, here I am. Like, I, I got— You got called I up had, the big leagues. I had the—I knew I got—I had gotten what I had asked for, essentially. Like, I, I was in the middle of exactly what I thought I had been trained to do. But what's funny then—I guess funny, but um, I remember one of our very first missions was to go do a post-blast investigation. And I had to ask, what is that? What does that even mean? And they said— like, um, you know, the infantry unit the, that was out there, they said, oh, we got blown up. You need to come out and look at the hole and collect evidence and figure out what kind of bomb it was. And I'd never even heard that this was like a mission, like that this was like, what, 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 are you, what are you talking about? I guess we can do that. And we drove out there and like walked up to the hole and looked at it and said, oh, yeah, I guess that's a hole. And what, what's funny about that is, you know, there was a different kind of war going on by that point. It was a roadside bomb, improvised explosive device war. Yep. But we were, I don't know, woefully unprepared, I guess. And if I had gotten out, even a couple months later, if I had gotten on my truck and walked up to that hole again, that probably would have killed me. Well, it's interesting you bring that out. I think you said 2005 is when you got there, uh, right? right. Okay, so. 05. I was there the same time. Uh, I arrived in 2005 and stayed midway through 2006. So 2005 to 2006, for those who don't remember, this is when the violence in Iraq really started to reach its height because 2007 was the surge to kind of quell all that. So 05 to 06 was really one of the most dangerous times in Iraq if, if you're going to grade as far as you know what was bad as far as violence was concerned because there was a lull after the after the initial invasion everything kind of calmed down for a little bit through 2004 and then all of a sudden the insurgency really started in 05 and 06 the roadside bombs the IEDs that was something that really dominated uh, everything that the the army and the military did there because it was the biggest threat to our survival so with that being said when you realize that this kind of war was going on and you realize that, hey, this wasn't what I trained on. This wasn't what I was expecting. This wasn't what they told us it was going to be like. Your thought was what? Well, uh, make sure we had a jammer on every truck, which we didn't. This would be a thing that would, you know, hopefully stop some of 
the bombs from exploding and make sure we had enough robots uh, and we didn't have enough robots. We had about two good robots for six teams when we should have had about 12 robots or two robots per team. Um, you know, we just, we were still bolting on like old armor, you yeah. know, old pieces of metal on the mm-hmm. sides of the truck. And it, you know, as a bomb tech, it was also a scary time because the bombs themselves were changing so quickly right. that, that you were afraid I'm going to show up on scene and it's going to be something I've never seen before. And because of that, I'm going to do something unknowingly that gets me or my team killed. And let me just clarify, when you mentioned a jammer, for those who aren't military and don't understand, the old roadside bombs, that were, they, were, they weren't detonated by like somebody. It wasn't like a landmine when you rolled over it, blowed up. What happened was, was, remember those old Nokia cell phones, the ones you used to play Snake on? Well, those were big in Iraq at the time, and those were actually used to remote detonate the bombs on the side of the road. And if you had what was called a jammer, Hopefully, what it was supposed to do was block the signal from the cell phone to detonate the device. Uh, and then you mentioned one other thing. That you, oh, the robots. The robots are simply exactly what they sound like. They're little motorized robots that would go out and be able to look at the bomb without you having to stand on top of it. Um, and, and those things, sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, those things were the ones that would actually detonate the bomb or set it off so this way no human lives were lost. But once that robot gets detonated, it's no longer useful. That's right. I mean, it's not like we would never send our robots on suicide missions because they were too valuable for that. But having said that, I loved blowing up a robot because it meant that we didn't get blown up, right? (laughs) So, I mean, it meant that the robot, yeah, it fulfilled its purpose, um, which which was, you know, important. And we just didn't, we were just playing catch up in so many ways, all the right equipment, uh, the training, those kind of things. Um, It was actually, you know, it's funny, the robots are what got me fired for my first tour. Really? Which I'm, I'm not sure if, we're, if we get to that part of the story, but I'll just no, go ahead, tell it. ahead. We needed our robots to get fixed, um, and it was, it was putting guys on that mission that eventually uh, got me fired. Well, what exactly happened? So we had, um, you know, like you say, we were in Balad about 45 minutes outside of Baghdad, and the only robot maintenance was in Baghdad, uh, and this is, you know, we needed, we needed uh, administrative approval to be allowed to get on a convoy to drive our robots down to Baghdad. And uh, I put in the paperwork with the general and with the aide, uh, and I didn't hear back for a week, and I called every day. And when I never heard whether they were allowed to go on, uh, on the convoy or not, I sent them anyway uh, because we needed our robots fixed. And about an hour after they left for the drive down to Baghdad, I got the call that their convoy was disapproved. So that's when you make a call uh, to the lieutenant colonel and say, hey, I've, uh, I've got guys down there, and the general says they're not supposed to be there. And I was relieved, um, I don't know, about 10 minutes later. Uh, and was my first trip to Iraq was, was done very, well, I don't know, a month or two after it started. Another reason I wanted to go back on another trip. Really? Okay, so uh, you, you, kind of your first tour in, you get there and you realize all this stuff is going on, and uh, any leader, I think, has been in this situation, especially when it comes to combat, because what you're trying to do is do what's best for your unit and do what's best on the ground, and typically some generals, not all, who don't have the same view of the battlefield as you do will make calls from their, lack of a better word, their perch that aren't in the best interest of what's going on, and that happens a lot. And, and 
to, to kind of go back to a bigger story, if you want to remember, you know, the way Pat Tillman was killed in Afghanistan, a similar thing happened. There were people it, uh, nowhere near where he was making the decision for what they needed to do. And ultimately, it got that, that, that platoon or that squad in a firefight that ultimately led to, to the death of Pat Tillman. So those things happen often. But when you got fired, what was your feeling? Well, that I had let my guys down. Like, you know, I, I thought exactly like you said, um, I thought that fixed robots would make my guys safer, right? That we, we needed these because they were keeping people alive. Um, but, it, you know, getting me, me getting myself fired, uh, standing up to the generals, so to speak, or, you know, just, you know, being the brash captain and saying, uh, I, can, I know better, uh, and I'm just going to do what needs to be done and charge ahead. Uh, you know, that didn't help my guys in the long run because if I'm fired, I can't help them. And I, I felt like a failure for a good long time. Uh, and that really, you know, I wanted, I wanted a second crack at it. I wanted a chance uh, to be able to prove that, you know, uh, I was going to say that I can get through a tour without being fired. I guess that's <laughs> partially true. But a chance, you know, like, hey, I want to... Uh, I want to be successful, and yeah, I guess we got some robots fixed, but in the long view, um, you know, I didn't do the best job I could. So on your first tour, you were there for such a short time. Did you get an opportunity to go detonate bombs? Did you get an opportunity to go d- disarm them, defuse them? I mean, did you, were you there long enough? I, I, yeah, I mean, I was, I was there. I mean, we were doing four or five missions a day. So uh, if I had been there about six hours, I would have had time to get out and um, and do some work. But it was... Um, you know, I, got, I had the ultimate punishment. I got kicked upstairs to headquarters, and I got to, um, I finished out my tour by, uh, by reading reports instead of actually doing the work. That must have been killer. That well, must have, that must have been the, 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 the burden of all burdens for you. It's like, uh, it's like penance or purgatory or something, right? You, um, you know, you can, you can see it, but you can't, you can't affect it. If there was one if there was one positive thing up in headquarters, I, had, I worked for a colonel that really liked to travel. Uh, and so I made it to something like 27 bases and little fire bases and, and every little speck from Al Anbar in the west with the Marines all the way up to Mosul and, and down and across. I saw every piece of sand in Iraq, I think, by the end of that tour. Um, but I was carrying bags, you know, for a colonel instead of uh, doing work. And for those who are questioning right now, I thought you got fired. Yeah. The, the military doesn't send you home when you get fired on a deployment. They just give you a different job. Oh, right. they, they write you a bad report, but it's not like you get to go, hey, what are they going to do? Send me home? No, they don't send you home. You get to stay the whole time. Right, and do a job that nobody else wants to do. Yeah, so that, that's that's kind of, you know, when you get fired, it's, it's not like when you get fired from your job, you just go home and kick your feet up. doesn't work that way. But in the time that you were in the field for that month and a half that it was, and you said mentioned five or six a day, uh, what I want to I want to draw the picture and, and again correct me if I'm wrong, because there are so few EOD units, explosive ordnance disposal units in any given area, and there are dozens, if not multiple dozens, of infantry units, armor units, whatever it may be, units like mine when I was there in Iraq that were running convoys almost every single day up and down the roads between Baghdad and Balad and all around the city. When a roadside bomb was found. Um, it wasn't a, a smart idea to try to just drive past it. So there would be times, for example, my convoys would be stuck on the side of the road waiting for literally hours for EOD to come. And it's not because EOD was lazy. It's because, oh, yeah, there's a line of other bombs they have to get to first. 
Yeah, sorry about that. No, <laughs> that's why <laughs> on I'm behalf of the EOD community, I apologize to for making you for making your way. But like you say, you weren't you weren't the first, and you won't be the last, unfortunately. No, definitely not your fault. But th- th- I mean, tell me about that. So you were kind of you get up eight o'clock in the morning. You have breakfast. I, I mean, do you know you're going that morning to go detonate a bomb, or you have to wait for a call to come, like a fireman? Yeah, you're the you, the fireman. The firefighter is exactly the right analogy. And we would have teams that would rotate like priority, so to speak. So you knew that, um, you know, starting at, at 0700, 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, that, that you're on standby first. Unfortunately, um, you know, the, you know, units moved at all times of the day and night, right. but most of the bombs were found during the day and then they would stack up and then you would hope maybe I can get back, you know, can I get back in time for midnight chow and sleep a couple hours before you start it all over again? I do remember there were some days, the joke is, it's not tomorrow till you sleep, so it can go from yesterday to tomorrow but never be today because, you know, you just you know, work through the 24-hour cycle, uh, just kind of keep eating, drink some of those terrible rip-it caffeine oh, energy yeah. drinks that used Ugh. to make me throw up, and then you just work and work and work until finally you're off shift and can go to bed. Was how grueling did that? How, let me rephrase that. How quickly did that tempo get grueling and mentally exhausting? Yeah, I think it's Groundhog Day, and of course, it's not. I'm not the first one to use that analogy for Iraq because if you're driving a convoy every day, uh, if you're if you're a helicopter pilot flying the milk run every day, if you're taking apart a bomb every day, it's still uh, the the analogy I like is we would wake up in the morning, we would go and seize the bridge. Uh, and then in the afternoon or evening, we would leave, and then they'd take over the bridge, and in the morning, we'd go seize it again. And you did that, you know, every single day. Wash, so rinse, repeat. The danger is that you go to a place where there had been a bomb before, and we would keep track of that very, very closely, um, and then make sure that you didn't stop your security in the same place you were last time, because that's a good place to have there be a bomb waiting for you, Right. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're trying to play, you know, there's only so many spaces on the chessboard, right? So when you keep going back to the same corner, um, or if you're on MSR Tampa, which is, of course, what we called the main highway through Iraq, um, there's only so many places to stop on the main highway. And eventually, it's just the more you go back, there, you know, the, the story in Catch-22 is that all the bomber pilots are counting to 100 missions. And I think there's something to be said for that. You you start counting, and you're like, well, you know, I can make it through 22 missions or, or 55 missions or 87 missions, but there was something about getting over the number 100 where you just, uh, you know, give you the heebie-jeebies. Like, I've pushed my luck too far, and at a certain point, this just isn't going to work anymore. There's a – back in EOD school, to back up a second, there's the legend of Murphy – Murphy, of course, Murphy's Law is, of course, anything that can go wrong will. And the idea is that if you keep working long enough, eventually your luck will run out, and yep. it's not your fault. It's just that Murphy got you. And Murphy in training meant that you failed a test, but Murphy in real life, of course, meant that you got hurt or killed or, or one of your folks did. Well, I've talked about that several times on the podcast with people because I, I felt the same feeling. As I said, I mean, I was running a convoy pretty much every three to four days when I was there during my first deployment. And there were mornings you'd wake up knowing you were going out on mission and you, you just had this sinking feeling. Today's the day. I've been out there too much. I've escaped too much. Nothing's happened in the last three or four runs. And you just, 
it the the mental fear and the mental exhaustion that something could go wrong is worse than something actually going wrong. Yeah, the, once something happens, then you then you have a problem to fix and you can work on it, right? But um, but it is fear, and I think that if people that tell you they're not scared aren't paying attention. It's not about whether you're scared or not; it's how you react to it. And of course, you still go out on the mission and you do the job you need to do, and then you count down the days that you're allowed to go home, hopefully. Did you lose anybody in the first tour? I didn't. Um, and not to jump ahead, but I'm fortunate. I didn't lose anyone that worked for me directly. I didn't lose any on either tour. I, um, Like most, I've lost too many friends overall, but right. fortunately never ones directly under my command. Let me ask you, as, as a tech going out there to dismantle or defuse a bomb, and you do it day in and day out, how do guys not slip up? How do guys not just get complete? It's natural. It's like making cereal every morning, like, and you're just pouring milk. Eventually, you're just going to miss the bowl because, hey, oh, my God, it's just easy. I've, I've done this a thousand times. But sometimes you miss the bowl because, well, it's just what happens. How do you not have that happen when you're an EOD tech? So we rely on the team. So, so an EOD tech never works alone, right. ever, for the reason that you say. And one reason EOD guys have a reputation for being punks and smart mouths and those kind of things is because we train the youngest um, soldier, sailor, airman, marine to speak up and tell their team leader if their team leader is getting complacent. We want the youngest 19-year-old kid to grab the 36-year-old you know, first sergeant by the collar and say, don't do that, it's dumb. And when you empower all of those people to say that, yeah, the you know your military customs and courtesies uh, <laughs> tend to go out the window, but it does keep everybody safer. And so it's I don't know. It sounds if I say that it's good communication, that sounds pretty uh, trite to me, and like that's you know some buzzword or something. Um, it but you're right. It's an absolute challenge. And as a as the commander, what I tried to do was switch my teams around, move them between FOBs, because we would have a large area. We would be, a FOB, of course, is a forward operating base. So we would have teams at the main hub and then also teams out at a number of the spokes all over the countryside. And if you switch up the teams, well, at least they're seeing different terrain. At least they're working in a different town. And if it's new to them all the time, then... Hopefully they don't spill the milk in the cereal bowl. That's an incredibly smart move. I mean, you know, again, obviously I commend you for that. And, and not only that, you know, obviously the, the fact that everybody on your in your unit stayed alive is obviously a testament to decisions like that. So uh, certainly tip of the cap there. Okay, so you go back for your second tour. You know, the old adage is true. Getting a man to go into battle once is easy. Asking him to go back a second time is a heck of a lot tougher, especially after he's seen what battle and war can do. I know you said that you had to kind of avenge losing your job on the first deployment. Was there anything else other than that that motivated you to go back? Well, the, you know, the war the war just kept going on and on. Uh, my friends were going to go whether I went or not, and I wanted my friends being, you know, the men and women that worked for me. Um, there's, like I've already, you know, alluded to, officer enlisted, uh, you know, we... We, I j- always joked that we would call each other by their first names. You know, his first name might be John, and my first name was Sir, but it was it was all the familiarity of uh, of, of being so close. And
and if they're going, you know, then of course I wanted to go as well. Um, but the war wasn't getting any safer. Um, and, and honestly, you know, the first tour was, uh, I don't know, it, it didn't, it didn't have a lot of traumatic incidents. We did, we did good work, but, but nothing that really bothered me. As it turned out, that second tour in Kirkuk is where I saw more and did more and experienced more um, than anything that I, I knew I was getting myself into. So you get to Kirkuk, uh, and, and you know the battle rhythm, you know the tempo, you know how much work you're going to be doing. Did that aid you there at all? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my eyes were open. It certainly did in training, right, as you're getting mm-hmm. your unit ready to go. Um, suddenly you're the one with experience and can say, hey, we need to we need to be ready to do this, that, or the other thing. With, you know, you have a plan about how you're going to hit the ground running. You have goals more than just survive. You know, we're going to um, – you have something to anticipate. Uh, you know the right questions to ask. Uh, you have just a whole lot more confidence in everything that you're doing. The problem is when I was away from the war for a year or so, um, all the IEDs, all the improvised bombs were different. I was going to a different city. I was going to a place where it wasn't uh, a Sunni-Shia conflict. It was an Arab-Kurd conflict. Um, like everything, you know, the Iraq War and Afghanistan, too, of course, they were so different year to year, city to city. Um, you know, they, they just varied so significantly and Balad in 2005 and Kirkuk in 2006 might as well have been, you know, other than the fact that it was flat and hot and dusty, um, they could have been completely different wars. What was your first, or let me rephrase that, what was the memory of your first incident in Kirkuk? You know, that, so that's, that's an excellent question, because I ended up writing a book about all of this, of course, mm-hmm. um, and I get to the tour in Kirkuk, pretty quickly, because that's where I say just um, from, a, from a trauma standpoint, it was far worse. And the, um, I got my memories of Kirkuk all mixed up. And it wasn't until I was actually done writing this book, uh, The Long Walk, and then um, going back through my journal and looking kind of day by day before I figured out that, wow, I had completely messed up like what days what what things were happening in what order. And when we got there in May, the, the unit we replaced said, you know what, things have been quiet for a while, and they were quiet for a while, for about two weeks. Um, and then we had a couple days that were absolutely terrible, and then after that it was two car bombs a day for months. And, I mean, talk about a different kind of Groundhog Day. We weren't, we weren't um, uh, you know, we weren't just... Uh, uh, disabling many bombs. We weren't taking many apart. We were mostly just doing evidence collection, counting bodies, saying, yep, another suicide bomb, and then moving on to the next one. And we did that all day, every day for months. Um, and it really started with, like I said, uh, two weeks into the tour. Uh, one day we did a raid on a bomb factory that turned out not to be a bomb factory. Um, the next day, almost like revenge, uh, we had what I call the day of six V-beds. A V-bed is a car bomb, a vehicle-borne IED. We had six of them in 15 minutes in downtown Kirkuk. Uh, and then the next day we had more V-beds, and one of my team leaders ended up killing a guy that 
ended up not being a threat. It was um, it was a bad situation, and you know, Dad, we ended up killing somebody we didn't need to, and then after that, it just spiraled from there. These things tend to get out of hand quickly uh, because it's so chaotic, uh, and there's a survival instinct versus a do the right thing instinct versus what you're trained to do instinct, and, and all these things that you have in your head kind of come to a convergence. Uh, and to reconcile them all at the same time is, is extremely difficult uh, for anybody or anybody you know who's in this situation. When you go back to looking at you know bombs and explosions and things of that nature, do you have a memory uh, of the first one or one of the one of the bigger ones that stands out where you kind of got mentally awoken to holy crap, I'm in an entirely different ball game right now? Yeah, actually, I mean, as you ask that question, I'm having this. Um, very early in that calm two weeks, we did get a call about like a rock in the middle of the road. Which <laughs> these are the these are the way the calls come in a, a suspicious rock. What makes it suspicious? <laughs> um, but we went anyway, and it was at night, and we sent the robot. Uh, we sent the robot down, and when we get there, um, lo and behold, the robot looks at th- this thing, and it is a suspicious rock. And there's a little window for a passive infrared, which is like um, the trigger that opens up the automatic door openers at Walmart or something, right? When mm-hmm. you walk in, it's the it's passive infrared is what sees you and and then activates this trigger. Well, there one is, and it's encased in this uh, in this thing that looks right like a rock, but it's not a rock. It's actually an array of explosively formed projectiles, which are um, these coffee can-sized things that shoot a jet of molten copper and puncture armor, almost all of our armor, no matter how thick it was. Um, they were extremely dangerous. And how this thing had not gone off, who knows? And as I'm looking at it through the robot screen, I'm thinking, that looks just like in training, except we're not in training. Like, that thing's actually real. And that, and there's there's the difference, is the year before... I was in Balad, and I was asking, hey, what's a post-blast investigation? And I was walking up to a hole, and only a year later, we're taking apart these explosively formed projectile arrays. Um, and that was a night where I felt like, wow, we actually succeeded. We, did, we, we took this extremely dangerous thing off the streets, and in fact, we called headquarters in Baghdad, and they flew us a helicopter like the next day to get them down for exploitation. You're like a rock star uh, in Iraq back then if you had a crate full of EFPs uh, to carry around. Um, but it wasn't soon after that that, like you said, these things spiral out of control quickly, and there wasn't, we didn't have very many good days after that good day. Had you ever, other than a funeral, seen a dead body before coming to Iraq? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, the only um, reason I ask that is because I, I know what it did to me. Like, I know the lasting image it left on me. And I guess what I'm wondering is if when you said you saw multiple over and over and over again, do you ever get desensitized to it? No, I think some of it got worse. How um, so? The, the bodies were, I mean, this is, so this could get graphic quickly. Um, but it, it seemed like the bodies started to be in smaller and smaller parts as the tour went on. Makes sense. And, and I remember... Um, like I said, we had that day of six car bombs, 
Five of them went off. One of them didn't. Uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga shot the suicide bomber before he could detonate his car. And so when we sent the robot in, the dead body was still in the front seat. And, and we took apart the device and everything else, and now we've got this body in the front seat, and he's got a hole in his head. And I, like, looked through the hole in his head, and I was thinking, there's dust all over his face and his eyelashes, and it wasn't the hole in his head that made me know he was dead. It was the fact that I knew the dust would have bothered, like he would have brushed off the dust from his eyes mm-hmm. if he was still alive. Does that yeah. make sense? No, it, make, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I mean it, it's everybody notices something different in that moment. And, and, you know, your brain processes it all a different way. And as soon as you started describing the dust, I knew exactly what you were talking about because anybody who has been in that environment, the, the dust gets built up on everything quick and, and you always right. try to wipe it off. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like that would stand out to me as well when you look at the face because I, I was drawing a mental picture of something similar in my head as you were describing it. Um, it and just to give people a sense, these, these car bombs that went off, literally you could hear it miles and miles away. And in certain cases you could see the, 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 the pillow of smoke and the, and the, and the, and the fireball, depending on the size of it, you could feel the ground shake miles and miles away. That's how massive these things were. And when you talk about the body parts getting smaller, for people who didn't understand what you were referencing as the bomb gets bigger, it leaves less of the person who was either wearing the bomb or driving the car with the bomb as opposed to somebody just strapping one stick of dynamite to their chest or a small bomb, and then their body breaks apart in pieces that you can recognize as a human body. Am I correct? Yeah, and they also got much more effective with the targeting, um, choosing to put the car bomb in a market, say, instead of trying to drive it into a heavily armored police checkpoint or something. Uh, so there there'd just be a lot more victim around, um, and not just the perpetrator um, you know, of the device. And I think that, yeah, the, I don't know. I never got over seeing organs laying on the street, Yeah, you know, like I, I, I didn't feel, but you get desensitized to, to doing the mission. Like you say, we would be having lunch, you know, in the chow hall and we would, we would hear it, like you said, and we would feel the shake and we wouldn't wait for the call for security. We would just go and jump, get in the truck and drive to the front gate and you know because we knew where we were going they knew where we were going it was it was the afternoon car bombs every afternoon there were two car bombs you could set your watch to it now let me ask you these car bombs that you put they put in a market or whatever on a street corner most of the, uh, of the dead bodies you were seeing they, correct me if I'm wrong they were Iraqi civilians as opposed to American soldiers correct that's correct yes it was we had um, we had a few um, I mean, it was it was a dangerous place for American soldiers as well, but nothing compared, just from a body count standpoint, nothing compared to being a, a local Arab or Kurd in Kirkuk. When you, you found out you lost a, a soldier or somebody you knew, I know because you said prior you didn't lose any of yours, how was that feeling different than seeing a dead Iraqi civilian? Yeah, it was... Um, I, I mean, the lesson is the same. the 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 lesson that I um, that I took from that is just how precarious life is, and how fortunate you are to still be breathing, um, and maybe how unlikely that's going to be for the rest of your tour. So, I, I think it's like taking a bite of the apple of the tree of knowledge. There's all these things 
uh, that you that you learn in the war. But later, I mean, when I'm home, um, there's a feeling of helplessness. Like at least if I'm over there, I'm doing something. But when I started to lose friends, you know, just uh, over and over again, uh, once I got back, there's there's the feeling that well, I should have if I had been there, I could have done something, which is the oldest feeling a soldier's ever had, right? Like yes, we've, we've survivor's all guilt. Been there. Yeah, it, it, it's something you carry with you forever. It, 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 I don't think it ever goes away. I think you just learn how to manage it, and that some people do it better than others. Now, you referenced the book, uh, The Long Walk, that you wrote, uh, and it's a, it's a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's so detail-oriented and, and really just kind of gets to the heart of the matter if anybody's ever wondering what combat is like. But the flip side of that book is, and uh, allow me just to kind of be blunt about it, in, in the opening page, you tell us that you're crazy. Uh, and and yeah. you spell crazy with a capital C. First off, tell me why the capital C, and how can you characterize yourself as someone who's crazy? Well, well let me answer the second one first. Okay. I, I use the word crazy because I didn't have another word. Now, maybe you could say, well, I've got another word for you. It's PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's maybe partially true, um, but it, I knew what that was. And I, I honestly, I feared having that diagnosis, but that didn't seem to, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't fit that mold. I was not relaying one event over and over again. I could get off the couch. I was, um, uh, I didn't see myself as, um, I don't know, hobbled by it or something. Like I, I had friends who had PTSD and I didn't seem to be feeling like they did. Um, and the truth is not to give away the end of the book, but I don't have PTSD. It's, uh, you know, you can, that is one specific diagnosis, and you have to have so many of the check bar, you know, check boxes in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the psychologist's Bible, and I don't have enough of them, you know. So, uh, I mean, back to the word. So it could be PTSD. Yeah, it was anxiety. Uh, it was fear. It was grief for my friends that were dead, um, it, but it was more than that. It was this physical sensation. It was I thought I was having a heart attack uh, several times, and I had had panic attacks in my life, and that was like something that had would like spring up and go away, and this was a feeling in my chest that didn't go away for months, which and that didn't make any sense either. So as I thought through all of the words um, that I could use, I ended up with crazy because it was all of these things at the same time. Um, and, and that really, I ended up writing the book to explain to myself what was happening to me. Now, why a capital C? It did feel like this outside force, like it was something, again, something happening to me, something, uh, it ended up, the crazy is almost like a character in the book um, by the end of it. It was something that I would, was trying to figure out or run away from or fight, maybe all at the same time. And uh, and it didn't necessarily feel like me. It felt like, yeah, this other thing that was happening to me. You know, you mentioned a moment ago you were afraid of being diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, and, and that's very poignant because a lot of us who experience PTSD are afraid of it. Uh, we're afraid of the stigma, afraid of the label, afraid of what that means for us for the rest of our lives. Can we ever get rid of it? Uh, and, and again, I, I, thankfully, I'm glad that you don't clinically have it. But do you feel like there are a lot of PTSD symptoms that you suffer from? 
Yes, and and probably still suffer from. Like I, um, uh, you know, I still kick in bed, and I don't remember the nightmares, but they still obviously happen all night because I roll around and swing my arms and and do all that other kind of stuff. So, I mean, I I mean, there's there's one of the classic ones. Um, I think the fear of having the PTSD diagnosis, part of it. I mean, this was a different time. This was 2010, mm-hmm. and there was there was we were starting to have some of the stigma gone. Um, at least I knew what PTSD was, which was, you know, uh, uh, I mean, even a couple years before it was, it was barely mentioned. Um, but my fear was that your life was over at that point, that it never got better, that it was like a permanent disabling diagnosis. And nobody could tell me otherwise. And th- it was this idea that the way that I felt that was completely intolerable, um, because, by the way, in addition to all of that anxiety, grief, fear, uh, feeling of a, of a heart attack, I also had all the brain damage from blowing stuff up over and over again, right? So your, mm-hmm. your brain is healing as well, and that's just one more impediment to dealing with all this stuff. I thought that whatever condition I had was permanent, um, and I should just, you know, if I had that diagnosis, it meant lay on the couch and stay there for the next 50 years if you live that long. And, of and- course, the, the point that I'm getting to is it gets better, I wish somebody right. had said, you know, from the very, very beginning that this, you know, this is a thing we can treat and you can get better afterwards. And I, I did not hear that until way late in the process of figuring out what was happening. You know, you mentioned your brain. And for those who are wondering where that comes in, traumatic brain injury. Uh, and you even say it in your book, you know, you think that's only for football players or boxers or, you know, sports people who get hit in the head a lot. No, TBI is a very real thing for people in the military. You've been around enough bombs that go off. That is the, the, the same effect as a NFL concussion. And if you do it long enough, you're obviously going to have some lingering health effects. Where are you with that physically? Well, I think I still notice that, my, that I'm healing. So, you know, we're talking in the evening. There was a time when I was writing this book where by, I'd say, dinner time, my brain would be so hot is how it felt. It just shut down and stopped thinking like a computer that had overheated, and I would not really be um, so functional in the evening um, and, and not be able to, I mean, like I could carry on a conversation or whatever else, but I, I didn't get any work done. I didn't do anything complicated in the evening. I saved it for when I was fresh in the morning. So the fact that I, you know, I can work now to all hours, like there's a, there's a definite step. Um, the, the memory, I... I my short-term memory was never that badly impacted, although it's getting better. There's long-term memories. That was really what I lost. And once you lose one of those, once you forget your child's first steps, for instance, that neuron is ripped up from the blast and nothing is fixing that neuron. Or when that neuron does fix, it's not like the memory returns. And, and so a lot of that is just dealing with that, dealing with the fact that when it comes to about 2003 to 2005, 2006, um, if it doesn't have to do with the war, I don't remember much of it. Well, what's harder for you to deal with? I mean, are you more struggling with flashbacks or seeing you know, things that are, that are popping into your head? Or is it a harder struggle to not remember your child's first steps, to not remember those critical moments that anybody who's had a child you know, holds so dear to their heart? What, what are you experiencing more of? Yeah, I have probably had one single flashback in oh, my really? whole life. So I never, there's another reason that I thought, wait a second, do I really have PTSD? I thought flashbacks were, were part of that. I, you know, 
I, I got over the idea that like a slamming car door or fireworks were incoming fire a long time ago. And in fact, you know, at the last 4th of July, I was thinking as all the fireworks were going off and everybody was happy, like I, I felt like a little stir of it again. And then I thought, you know what the problem here is? It's not that things are detonating and I'm having a flashback. It's that nobody's reacting to contact, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if, if there's so many detonations, then I would just feel better if everybody were, like, taking cover and shooting back. That would be, you know, that, that would be comfortable. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't, call that, I wouldn't call that a flashback or something. But, um, I mean, I knew, I knew where I was and what was happening, and I didn't get too anxious about it. It was losing the memories and getting over that that was the hard part. It, so, was, it, it was interacting with my wife, and she would say, do you remember when we met and we did this? And I just, I still don't remember that. And that's, that's tough on her because um, she thinks that, like, somehow it wasn't important to me, or if it was, why could I remember things about the war and not about her? I still don't have a good answer for that. And dealing with all that kind of stuff, and what kind of person am I if this is how I've, if these are the things I remember or how I responded to the war, what does that say about me? It's, it's dealing with that kind of stuff more than any specific symptom that was the hardest part. Is the persona of crazy with a capital C still something you're living with every day? No. Uh, and if it was, I would have killed myself by now. Why? And, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, military suicide is a suicide among veterans and military members is a real problem. And um, it was the feeling was completely intolerable. And that's why getting to the right psychologist and being able to talk through it and start to receive treatment was so important for me. What feeling was that, though? Can you describe it? Yeah, it's this. Um, so if anybody's ever had a panic attack and then if it like subsides in a couple minutes, uh, and then that, like, doesn't go away for months. And, um, you know, my heart would just be constantly racing. Some of it is the heightened awareness that a lot of us have felt. Um, and then, yeah, all those, all those other um, feelings I mentioned and, and having the healing brain that's not able to process it. So I don't, I don't think that my – I'm no special, unique butterfly snowflake here. Like, this is not um, – I struggled to – figure out what to call it, but I don't think that I experienced something that everybody, that plenty of other people didn't too, you know what I mean? If you hadn't wrote the book, do you still think you'd be struggling? I, you know, so I think writing the book, that, that's a good question. So there, I've come to think about this in, in really two ways. Writing the book was definitely part of a therapy for me, and it was a catharsis. And, and what it allowed me to do was to stop holding on to a lot of memories like like the day of six car bombs that I talked about. You know, I felt such obligation and responsibility to remember every single minute of my tour. And if I didn't remember, I was somehow like dishonoring the memory of what we did. I was dishonoring the men and women I served with. I just, I held on to it so tight. And writing it down gave me space to forget. And if I want to know what happened in my Iraq tour, I can go back and read my own book. You know, like I try to put as much of that away as possible. So writing it, I think, was extremely helpful. Having said that, nobody wants to read a catharsis. And I didn't need to publish this book to get the same effect, I think. I think that plenty of veterans would be served from sitting down and writing out their story. And if nobody reads it but them, 
then fine. Like you, you'll get this 99% of the benefit that I did too. Not that I, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't want to prescribe anything for anyone, but, but that it, you get all the benefit. The, the choice to publish the book and then keep writing afterwards, you know, that's because I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to take that on as, as a new profession. And, you know, that's, that's a different choice than, um, figuring out how for my, you know, to deal with these issues for myself. You know, it's interesting you talk about writing it after. Um, from a personal note, during my first tour, I kept a journal that ended up being 168 pages of single-space 10-point font. Um, and I, I begin to wonder, because it just kind of dawned on me, if I was able to let things go quicker because I wrote it. Now, I've never went back and read it, uh, and I've only shared the last page of it with people because I, I just I think it was therapeutic going through the whole thing to kind of do a brain dump every day and not carry a lot of the things with me, not carry a lot of those fears with me. Some things obviously I'll never get rid of, but I think it's interesting you pointed out that once you wrote it down, you were able to let it go. And and I wonder if that isn't something that more of us should have done along the way. Cause I I, I look back and I always tell myself, I'm going to go read the journal, but I never do. Cause I'm almost scared of what I wrote. Oh, I, I, I know that feeling for sure. Um, and I, it was tough to go. I did keep a journal, but only sporadically. The thing that I'm scared of, I wrote a letter to my kids for them to read in case I died. And I still have that letter in my safe, you know, along wow. with my passport and those kind of things. And so I see it every once in a while when I'm just like flipping through all those important papers. And I'm not sure I'll ever work up the gumption to read that thing. It's, um, that thing scares me to death, um, what, what I might have put in there. But, the, but yes, I think, the, I think you don't need to be the next Stephen King. Um, you can, you know, writing out your story, um, like you've said, there's, uh, there are thousands and thousands of men and women that all have their own story. And no matter how many people actually hear it, just getting it out of them for, for themselves, for their family, uh, for nobody, I think can be really helpful. No, absolutely. And we hope the point of this podcast does some of that. And let me ask you, what are your regrets? Um, I, I really, I don't know. I just, I decided not, I've made the conscious choice to not look at life like that. Because if I'm not careful, I'm going to, what am I going to do? I'm going to regret well, can I, going can I, to Can I make school? that question more specific? Are there any regrets from a military standpoint? Are there any? Is there anything during the tour you wish that you had done, even if it was not getting fired? Do you wish you not send that convoy out? I mean, or is that something that you look at that shaped the rest of everything else? I I look at it the second way, and I, maybe that's a cop out, um, but but I don't think so. Like I, if I had never, uh, if I had not gotten fired, I probably would not have volunteered to go back. And then I wouldn't have ended up in Kirkuk, and I wouldn't be talking to you, right? So it's, yes, I think there are smarter choices I could have made. Um, there are things that I wish, uh, like I mentioned briefly before, the, the, one day, the one day where we killed a civilian and we didn't need to. Um, I wish I could take that incident away from my team leader who pulled the trigger. Um, but... But I don't, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't do – do I regret putting him in that situation where he had – where we had to make that decision? I don't um, 
I, I don't know what purpose it serves to go back and rehash that stuff. Well, that's fair. I, I just everybody has a different response to that question at the end of the podcast, and and I, and I usually ask it because when you, when you've had so many things happen and it's in such a short time, and, and a lot of it is so impactful, both positive and negative, th- there's always things I think people would like to tweak. And maybe regret is the wrong word a lot of the times, but it's just, I, I guess, like you said, you'd like to be able to massage things a little bit differently, but in the end, that changes the the finality of the story, if you will. Right. I mean, I I wouldn't give up any of the lessons I learned. I le- I learned... Here's the thing. I think in the military, you get your midlife crisis back in your 20s or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you figure out your own mortality. You figure out your place in the world. You do yes. lots and lots of growing up. And I'll tell you what, I do not have any trouble carpeting the diems every day. <laughs> well said. It, it's funny because we, we talk on the podcast a lot about coming to grips with your own mortality. And, and, and that that's something I don't think everyday civilians do. Maybe policemen do it. Maybe firefighters do. Uh, but when you are in a combat zone, especially for an extended period of time, coming to grips with your own mortality is a daily exercise. And it's something you have to get comfortable with. And if you don't, you talk about going crazy. That can eat you up alive. It, it can. And probably dealing with that, maybe I didn't fully deal with it until I got home you know, is one reason that, or I put it on the back burner and I tried to ignore it. But, um, you know, you focus so much on survival from day to day, but you're, but you're aware that you are trying to survive from day to day. I guess that's the point, you know. And then, um, you know, the, the military, if you're not careful, can steal all your tomorrows when you think only about today and how, how am I going to live through today. Um, and then it's only recently that I've been able to say, you know what, I might actually live till 60 or 70. Like this is, this, this is a, this is a possibility. Like I'm going to, I'm going to make it through the end of the end of today. So there's, there's good and bad at that, but it does help me. Maybe that's another thing about the regret that I don't, I don't have a lot of regrets because I know that I'm squeezing all that marrow from life and whatever the other cliches are. Well, that's beautifully said about the military stealing your tomorrows. And, and it's not that I think it's a bad thing. It just, for those of us who have been doing this and I've been doing it for 17 years, that happens. It happens more than you think it does. And I, I just very eloquently put, I've never heard anybody put, it, anybody put it like that. But you did mention a minute ago about the lessons that you've learned. So with that, what do you want people to take away from your story? Uh, I, I guess to, to take away that the life goes on part that we eventually got to at the end. I think the struggle uh, is that when you are in the combat zone, when you're a veteran, when, you've, um, when your job was keeping people alive as a medic or flying a helicopter or being in charge of a platoon or whatever else, it's hard to find something that will ever measure up. I sometimes think about the military as um, it's like playing a sport, and I love the Olympics, and going to war is like your Olympics. It's the thing you train for, and then you get to go do it and succeed. And I don't mean to trivialize the pain and suffering and death and everything else, but there is something about training really, really hard and then getting a chance to do something afterwards. And once you've had that peak experience, uh, I was afraid a part of the crazy feeling was that the most important thing I would ever do in my life, I had done at age 28. And now what am I going to do? And I found that for myself in writing. You know, I've... um, I'm three books in, and I'm writing a fourth book now, and I've, I've gotten a chance to 
cover the U.S. military response to Ebola in Liberia and 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 do all sorts of you know um, take on various writing projects. And writing for me is as good as taking apart bombs used to be. And that's the struggle. And not to get preachy, but I think the takeaway is if you can find a podcast or a business or a um, or or a project or your kids or whatever they happen to be something that's as important as what you used to do. That's that's the struggle, but it's good on the other side when you find it. Well, once again, Brian, perfectly said. Uh, I want to thank you for being here with me. Uh, I want to thank you for your service and everything that you've done, and most importantly for telling your story. Uh, you're definitely a hero to me, and your courage to me is what stands out to be able not only to do what you did from a military standpoint, but to survive and to tell it all and to overcome what you personally, the personal demons you have to overcome, to be here today on this podcast with me is just something that I hold in the highest of regard. I sincerely thank you for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, and your experience with all of us, man. It means the world to me. Well, you're very kind, and again, thank you for having me. It was my honor. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.